If you were here last week, then you saw us start something new where we announced it, something, I guess, for, for the general audience, the general people that come to Legacy, we announced that we'll be moving soon. In the next several months, we'll be moving to North Central, moving this gathering right here, which we're very excited about. But as we talked about it, we knew as a staff that we would not just be moving to a building, a new building with seats that's our own, with a sign on the front, but really what we were most excited about is a community. And so as we started drafting and praying, um, we know there to be about 25 communities within a two and a half mile radius from where we're going to be meeting. It's what we're growing to call Center City, um, just the part that we would call our backyard. There's a lot of different neighborhoods in Knox County and the surrounding area, but this is, this is the part of town that we've been most focused on, the part of town that we've been most excited about. So last week we brought up one neighborhood, which is downtown North. And downtown North has the girls and or the Boys and Girls Club, which is the Haslam Center. And we kind of brought up what they're about and how excited we are as a church to be a part of that. And we prayed for them individually. Today, I want to bring up another neighborhood, and it's the Five Points neighborhood. There's a church there. It's Tabernacle Baptist Church. There's a pastor there, a great guy. His name is Chris Battle. And he's a pastor that I'm becoming very close with. And as we talk about our heart for the community. He's someone that we, I feel like, maybe can partner with. When we go to that part of downtown, there are churches and entities that we can partner with, and then there are churches and entities that we can only network with. There's a big difference. Some of them, they just row their canoes a little differently than we do, and some of them are taking the canoe in the wrong direction, right? We can't just love everything that's going on and be on board and touch everything that's happening in that part of the city. So as we talk to pastors and as we talk to ministry leaders, it's been interesting to see who it is that we can really throw weight behind and say, we can push that plow, we can go forward with them, and Chris Battle, I believe, is one of them. He's doing some fantastic things in the area and has shown me as a pastor, pastor to pastor, what it looks like to really take active and initiative in the surrounding neighborhood. One of those things we're going to be talking about in the future, which is their work with single mothers, right? And I'm very excited about that. But as I spoke with Chris Battle, Pastor Chris, this week, I asked him, what one thing can we be praying for for his church corporately today? And they've got special outreaches Monday through Wednesday this week that they're very excited about, and they really want to see the Lord move. So what I thought I would do is just pray with you as a church that God would bless them, that God would bless Tabernacle Baptist Church at that little part, that little junction of their neighborhood where five points touches the Magnolia Warehouse District, and there's great need. Lots of people that do not know Jesus, lots of people that do not love Jesus, but we're going to believe God that Jesus is made famous in that area and that their church swells, their church grows. So pray with me. Father, we thank you for calling special men and churches and special endeavors to that part of the city, God. They're going to do something beautiful. You're doing something beautiful through them. And I'm excited to see it. I'm excited to be a part of it as much as we can as a church. But right now, Lord, what we just ask is for favor for them. Favor is they preach your gospel. Favor is hearts are quickened. Lord, that there would be new Christians, marriages repaired, that there would be families that would uh, call you the anchor to who they are. Lord, we just ask for that church to have your presence your Holy Spirit, as they reach out to the neighborhood around them. Lord, that you would bless Chris and his wife, Toma. Lord, that you would minister to them as they minister to that city. 
And Lord, that you would do radically good things through them this week. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to be talking more and more as time goes on about that neighborhood and what our role is going to be as a church as we move to that neighborhood. And as I said last week, we're going to be calling to you to give financially to it. We're going to be calling you to give of your time and of your talent to making this thing happen. Because again, it's not a building that we are most excited about. It's the community that it's nestled in. That's what we're excited about. You can actually already start giving to it if you wanted to. As of this morning, it's live. You can pull down on our giving module on our website, which Wes and Chris will explain a little bit later. You can actually pull down, and it says building fund, and you can give to the building fund, which is going to help us get into that neighborhood because we can't afford it right now, but I know that we will be able to. So you can already start giving to it, and in the weeks to come, I will talk to you about other ways in which we can give to this. Very excited about it. Please be praying for that. And continue to pray for the Boys and Girls Club right there in the downtown north neighborhood. But right now, what I'd love for you to do is turn in your Bibles to Acts 25. That's the text that we're going to be using today. I'm excited about this text. It's a different text. You've probably never heard it preached before, because <laughs> I haven't, and I've definitely never preached it before. Um, but I am excited. I've been wrestling with it for a couple weeks. It's been very helpful to me. You might have heard someone say that you can have a lot of good friends, but you can't have a lot of best friends. You could like a lot of things, but you can't have a lot of favorite things. This is the reasoning that has gone behind Twitter's recent decision, even this week, to replace the star function with the heart function, right? So if you're on Twitter, you're active in social media, or at least that little hallway of social media, you, you might have noticed they've taken the star away and given you a cute little heart instead. The idea is to upgrade how many I guess the chatter on social media, because you do feel a little bit weird by saying, that's my favorite tweet, when it's just a good tweet, right? You don't want to retweet it, because it's not that good, but right under retweet is the heart now, which says, I like it, I don't love it, because I don't want the whole world to know that I love this, but at least I like it. So they're trying to get more people liking things, the favorite button was getting in the way, so they replaced it with the heart. So now you can heart someone, you can heart their tweet. I love social media. I mean, I don't love it enough to really use it like I ought to use it, but I love watching the evolution of it because it is fairly new when you think about it. A couple years ago, we did a series called Do You Like Me? And it was on uh, man-pleasing and the fear of man, basically. And you can go back on our website and listen to it if that's something that's interesting to you. It's actually linked to on our weekly page. Um, but some of the research that we discovered in going into that series is that the people that got the most likes on Facebook alone were, the, were those who spoke about themselves the most often. The more you spoke about yourself, especially using personal pronouns, the more you did that, the more likes you got, which is counterintuitive, isn't it? Because no one really likes to read someone talking about themselves all the time. But research shows that we're all wrong, and we actually do like that. Um, but what it also showed is, is whenever someone got a lot of likes for a post, they would do more posts and status updates that look like that. So if someone went off on a political rant, for example, because I know that's never happened on Facebook, but let's pretend that it does, right? And someone went off on a political rant on Facebook, and it got 80 likes when the dude's only got like 40 friends, right? Guess what he's going to do the very next day? He's going to go off on another political rant. Why? Because he got hearts or tweets, or shares, or something. He got something to say, we approve of what you were saying. 
We're giving attention to it, and we approve of it, so the person does more, all right? They take a picture of their Chick-fil-A, cute little thing. Hey, enjoy my Chick-fil-A today. Here's a picture of my chicken sandwich. If they get like 100 likes or hearts, you know what they're going to do the next day? Here's my Chipotle. Very excited about my Chipotle. They're going to keep doing it. What does this show us? They were very narcissistic, (laughs) yes. We like what we eat. It shows us that the peer pressure is still alive and kicking, is it not? It controls what we do, our actions, our words. As it turns out, getting people to like you is not just for middle schoolers anymore. It is mainstream. And as adults, we will do things and we will say things in order to get approval. We will be pressured from our peers even today. And even though social media is a new kid on the block, peer pressure is not, right? Peer pressure has been around as long as the sun. If you go back to the garden, you see Adam. Adam who was created to be overawed, to have an awe for God who created him, right? That's where the word awesome comes from, is to be awed, something that is just very impressive. He loved God, but what the rebellion did in his heart is turned him into the desire of being a God unto himself. This is what we call uh, the fall. Some of you are not used to the things that you hear in Christian churches, and you hear the fall. That's what it is, where man turned inside out, and the core of us became rebellious instead of impressed and overawed by who God is. The thing, though, if you're going to reject a God and a king, you must become one. You become one yourself. You become your own Lord. You become your own chief, the captain of your own ship. But if you're going to be a God, what it requires is that you have followers and worshipers and a pretty big fan base to say, you are special, we love you, we give you attention and adoration. I think this is one of the big reasons that social media has taken off as much as it has. It kind of meets that need. If you're ever curious as to whether you're special, look at the big roster of all 385 of your friends who aren't even really friends. And because we inherited rebellion from our father, Adam, I think we're always going to be tempted to hunger for the adoration and the attention and the approval of others. And I know some of you already, if you're like me, are wanting to turn this sermon off and depart from it, right? With the phrase in your mind, I don't care what people think about me. I don't even care what people think about me. I'm above the the petty fray of culture and what they like and don't like. I'm beyond that. I just want to caution you a little bit. What you might be doing is very ungodly. Sometimes we say, that doesn't impress me or influence me because we see ourselves as much higher than the insignificant peons that walk around, right? I don't care what they think about me. Look at them. They're like lesser life forms. I'm special. I'm significant. They're insignificant. Why would I even care about what they think? And that's not, the, that's not the right way to overcome intimidation and peer pressure. That's a very ungodly way. So let me just caution you just for a moment. Don't turn this off. Before you check out, why do you not care what people think about you? Why? How is it that you're flying above the, the intimidation and the peer pressure that floats around free range every day in our world? How are you doing that? Does it honor God? I'd like to look at how we as Jesus' people fly above intimidation and peer pressure just for a little bit because today in this text we have two characters that struggle with the temptation to change what they say and to change what they do so that others will 
approve of them. Others will like them and heart them. And as I said earlier, it's likely you've never heard this text preached before, as Alistair Begg always likes to say, and I love this statement, all texts of the Bible are equally inspired, but they're not all equally inspiring. And this is one of those texts, it's hard to kind of like squeeze something out of for your day-to-day life, but it is very helpful. Typically, we mow this passage down as we race to the end of the book of Acts to say we read it, right? But there is great stuff in here, and like I said, it's been really messing with me the last couple weeks. I've enjoyed it. Because we've been taking a close look for almost 30 weeks now in the book of Acts at what it means to be one of Jesus' people as we extend God's gospel to the community, right? Even in the last several weeks, we've looked at how, as missionaries, we tell our own story, our testimony, how we tell good stories as people. We've looked at how we have to be gentle and patient as we do this. We've looked at how we need to be contextual, and in loving to the people that we serve. And today I want to look at how we handle intimidation as we do such. Because it's out there. It's out there. So look in Acts 25, verse 1. This is actually in the same courtroom. It's another courtroom scene, like last week was. And this is the same courtroom that we were in last week, except for it's two years later. Right? Two years has expired from the last time that we looked at this, in this Bible. Acts 25, verse 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, now Festus replaced Felix. That's what we were talking about last week. We're already on a new governor. He went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Okay, pause. Festus, new governor, and a long line of governors. Many had come before him, many are going to come after him. They come and they go. Why are they coming and going so often? It's because the Caesar is recalling them. You see, the Jewish leaders were very powerful and very intimidating. And if they didn't like what the Romans were doing, they'd flip out and cause an insurrection and a riot. And so the Romans would, would come back with reprisals and be real brutal. And then, the, and then the Jewish community would come back, and it would be a back and a forth and a back and a forth. It would always be tumultuous and a lot of just disarray and chaos. Rome couldn't have it. So if that happened to you as a governor, you're going to lose your job. They're going to call you back. Pilate, Felix, Festus, it's a long line of governors that have come and have gone. So these Jewish leaders, there was great pressure to make them happy. Great pressure. They were powerful, and they were intimidating. This is why you see, I mean, he's not even been in his role for three days. It says now three days after Festus arrived in the province, he gets on the red eye, and he bolts down to Jerusalem as fast as he can, right? Bringing free vol tickets and a couple fruit baskets and whatever it takes to give to these Jewish leaders to say, hey, I'm not like the last guy. That last clown caused you some problems, I understand, but you need to know I'm a little bit different. He's trying to be diplomatic. Three days. He hasn't even unpacked his boxes yet. And you don't think they know that? They do. That's why they're asking for a favor. Very quickly, asking for a favor. Well, we're glad you're here, Festus. I bet you are better than the last governor. Hey, I tell you what. You could probably do us a favor right now. What we really want is Paul. That you would let Paul come here. 
that we would, I mean, just try him. I mean, we don't want to try a guy that there's nothing wrong with. We're just trying to get to the bottom of things. We're just trying to get to, to the bottom of what's going on with him. He's probably innocent for all we know, but we just, we feel like we need to have the courtroom. We need to have it here. Could you just give him to us, right? That's what's going on. Of course, they're going to murder him on the way. And it's the same thing that it was two years ago. Same plan, same illegal intentions. They're not, they're not very innovative. I mean, they've had two years to think of something else to do to get Paul out of the picture. All they could do is come up with the same boringly predictable thing. We're going to get him here. Listen, guys, this is what we're going to do. It's totally different, except it's, it's not, really. We're going to get him here, and then we're going to jump out, and we're going to kill him, right? That's it. What do you think? Same thing it was two years earlier. Verse 4. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, that they could not prove. Now, and here it is, verse 8. Before we read verse 8, I want you to hear the voice of a man with a clear conscience. Not intimidated. Not pressured. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and be tried there on these charges before me? Okay, so what Festus is trying to do here is get this off his shoulders and get it off his plate. He's needing to make this powerful group of men happy. Paul, I mean, they've, they've got a good point. I mean, we're all the way over here in Caesarea. It doesn't really make much sense. I mean, what they're saying happened, happened over there. We should go over there. I'll even go with you. It's not a big deal. Let's just do that. What do you think? Paul disagrees. Verse 10, but Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Not intimidated, is he? But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Very simply, an appeal is something that every Roman citizen had a right to. Unless you were like a bandit or a murderer that was like caught in the act, if you were a Roman citizen and you felt like there was maybe some violent coercion or it was a capital offense, you could appeal to Caesar. And that's what's going on. And listen, Festus is probably just as happy to have this happen as well, because again, it gets it off his plate. Go to Jerusalem, that's fine. Go to Rome, that's fine. Just get off of my front porch. You see, because in this whole thing, Festus is intimidated. He's just looking to pass the buck. He's just looking to get it away from him. He's intimidated by these guys. And because he's intimidated, he's being dishonest. He's being cowardly. He's being very partial. The reason I think this is important for you and me is because I think there's a Festus in all of us. I can relate to this guy. I think Festus is kind of the everyman. I can be intimidated. And when I am intimidated, I see how it makes me cowardly. I see how it makes me a little dishonest in my heart. 
Festus knew he was wrong. He knew his actions were being controlled by his need to be liked and secured by these powerful people. He needed them to heart him. Where are your actions? Just quickly ask your own heart. Where are your actions controlled by how others view you right now? Where is the Festus in your life coming up? The powerful, intimidating forces around you. How desperate are you to get other people to approve you and give you attention and adoration? These are serious questions. Verse 13. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice, and that's brother-sister, not man-wife, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, This is a man left, by, or left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in the case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. So he's like, look, I, they were arguing about nerd stuff. Nerds arguing about nerd stuff, and I'm not a nerd, so I don't speak nerd. So that's their thing, and I don't even quite know what's going on. Being at a loss, he says, how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Okay, enter another player in the story and a very intimidating guy, and that's Agrippa. He's actually Agrippa II, Marcus Julius Agrippa, right? He's about 30 years old at this point in the story. His sister Bernice was about 29. They're young. Scholars believe that in the whole Herodian dynasty, he was the most impressive leader. He was actually the emperor's favorite. He's an intimidating guy. He rolled with a very intimidating entourage. It was his father who killed the apostle James. It was his great uncle who killed John the Baptist. It was his great-grandfather who tried to snuff Jesus out and killed a bunch of kids in the process. Intimidating family line, intimidating role, intimidating leader, intimidating guy. So not only are the people intimidating now, but the whole setting of this examination gets over the top real fast. This is where we pick it up in verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And that just means grandeur, over-the-topness, right? And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So he entered into this arena. He wasn't already there. He walks into a room and sees all of these people. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. 
but I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Walks into this room, and he sees a lot of grandeur and pomp. I mean, these tribunes, there was five in Caesarea, history tells us. Each one commanded a thousand troops. They're like generals. Walks in and sees these prominent generals, these wealthy politicians. Everyone who was anyone was in this room. You see Festus there, and he's got his royal robes on and his crown and his scepter and his guard. He walks in, King Agrippa is there with his big fat crown and Bernice with her crown and Of course, they've got a long flowing robe and their big entourage. That room was full of people. William Barclay says in his commentary commentary on this one passage, in his opinion, this is the most dramatic scene in the entire New Testament. I could think of a few others I think are, are more dramatic, but I get what he's saying. We cruise right past this, don't we? How would you do? If you... Regardless of your politics, I don't care who you're going to vote for or who you voted for. If you were to walk into a room and the president and his family and the vice president and all of the cabinet and all of Congress and all of the military leaders of all the armed forces were there just to see you, that's a high point of being pressured. You're going to feel the weight of intimidation regardless of whether you agree with their politics. You're going to feel the weight of the glory and the the pomp and the grandeur of the room. It'd be easy, the pressure to say or do certain things. It would have been high. But as we are seeing now with how Paul is talking and as what we're going to see next week, he doesn't budge. Not a bit. He won't budge. Now, this is fascinating to me. This is the question I have as a guy who's grown up easy to intimidate. I'm easily intimidated. I've always been a guy that's it's giving in to peer pressure, doing stupid things in order to get, to, to get everyone to like me. Can I be the most likable guy in the room, you know? Always swayed and easily swayed. And I see Paul here keeping his absolute cool. And my question is how? How is he doing this? How is he pulling it off? Because he's not devaluing everyone in the room and saying their opinion doesn't matter. And he's not elevating himself and saying he's more important than everyone in the room. So how is he pulling it off? I mean, I'm watching this courage and this clarity. I'm wondering where it's coming from. He doesn't care if they click the like button. doesn't care if they heart him. He's not equivocating like Festus is. I'll tell you why. He's already seen glory. He knows what it looks like. He's met a king already. He's already been overawed. Sure, it's an impressive room. He's seen more impressive rooms. He's been in more impressive places, and he's been surrounded by a better royalty. You look in 2 Corinthians 12. It'll be up on the screen, so don't don't flip there. Stay where you're at. This is Paul talking. He says, I know a man, he's speaking of himself in this passage, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. This is amazing. Because think about it. Mankind is always able to come up with words to describe momentous 
moments and in views. I mean, that's what makes a writer good and a poet better than another poet, to see something beautiful and be able to, I guess, communicate to someone else just how beautiful it is. When you read a good writer, don't you feel like you're there? Mankind doesn't struggle in this. But Paul saw something that was so beautiful that the words to describe it cannot be rehearsed before mortal ears. It's an incredible view. He has seen paradise. So he probably saw the glitz and the glamour of all the crowns and the entourage of that room and probably was fighting back yawns. Probably was trying to not be rude and act like he was actually a little bit more impressed than he was because here they are pretending to be in charge, but he's been around true royalty who truly is in charge. He would not be intimidated, not because he was tough, but because he did not need their approval. And his jaw-dropping as paradise is, as jaw-dropping as it was for Paul to see that there is something more beautiful than even that. Peter talks about it, and we're going to get this out of Peter. In uh, chapter 1, verse 12, it says, It was revealed to them, them being prophets in this context, okay? It was revealed to the prophets that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that they have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, into thi- or things into which angels long to look. What Peter is saying is that prophets were saying things really for your sake. The gospel was preached by the power of the Holy Spirit really for your sake. And it's so powerful and so beautiful, this good news, this gospel, that angels are crawling over each other just to get a view of it, just to get a glimpse of it. We look at it as kind of boring and common, which shows we have a lot of growth to do which shows that we haven't really seen it as well as it could be seen. But I want you to consider something. Consider this aspect of what the cross has done. It has made you into a new image. That's what I want to focus on today, is how God's work to mankind through the person of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has formed you and me into new images. And this is hard for us to see because we look in a mirror every day and we see the same old image. We don't really change that much. We gain a few wrinkles. Hair goes away a little bit. But we're really the same people. Same past, same checkered history, same misbehavior staring us back in the face. And so when we read things like a new image, that's more of a, yeah, yeah, whatever that means. I'm not even quite sure. New image. I guess that's how God sees us. I, I don't see myself as a new image. So we brush it off. But we are a new image, not an improved image, but a new one. Romans 8, 29, it says this very quickly. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There's the same exact word, image of his son. This means that this is by God's hand. By God's hand, you were made new. Not the same. Not the same person looking back in the mirror. 1 Corinthians 15. Just as we have borne the image of man of dust... We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. It's a new image. Not the same, but new. One of the beautiful things about the gospel that these angels love to look at, one of the beautiful things about it is that God himself, in the person of Jesus, took your form and took your image on himself and then gave you his image and his form. That's a cataclysmic exchange. That's an incredible reversal. 
He took your form. He took your image from you and gave you his. What does that mean? It means your approval rating, it's as high in God's eyes as Jesus before God's eyes. That sounds weird to say, doesn't it? When God sees you, he sees the value in you that he saw in his very own son. That means that your value in God's eyes cannot be increased, cannot be added to. If God has liked you, hearted you, retweeted you, if he has approved you, what is man going to be able to do? What can man do for that? I think this is where Paul was at, standing in that room. I think he had a firm understanding of this. He didn't need any fans. He was happy to be a fan. He didn't need any worshipers. He was happy to be a worshiper. He didn't need to be glorious and king in his life. He was happy to sit at the feet of a king. Mankind, not even royalty, could improve his situation. Therefore, he is not intimidated. Festus needed that. Festus needs the approval. He needs the attention and the adoration. Paul just doesn't. Doesn't. Doesn't need it. Here's some personal application for you and me. When our eyes are fixed on glory, we don't have to seek it for ourselves. We don't need it. When our eyes are filled with God's grace and his gospel for us, we don't need to be everybody's favorite person in the room. We don't need to feast on attention and adoration from other people. We don't require anyone to heart us, to like us that way. I feel like a lot of times I can be a Mr. Potato Head. Maybe you're like this. You come in a room, you know, and you've got all your accessory pieces. Your eyes look a certain way. Your ears look a certain way. You are a certain way. But depending on who else is in the room with you, you can quickly interchange some of these pieces and look like you're someone totally different, right? Why are you doing that? You're intimidated. The peer pressure of looking and fitting in and being like everyone else so they like you more, give you more attention, give you more adoration. We all want to be Mr. Potato Head. It's a lot easier. But this is where community is hard. You see, community begins. True community, life on life with each other. God's people doing life in close proximity with other Christians. Whenever you see that, the best community in the world is with those who are very comfortable being themselves. They don't have to pretend to be somebody else. They don't have to steal affection from others. They're such a fan of God, they don't need fans. They love Jesus so much, they don't need others to just fawn after them. A very common thing you hear with people that struggle with community is I just felt like I couldn't be myself. I felt like I didn't fit in. A lot of times that's because people are so busy pretending to be someone that they are not. And there's a dishonesty in that. They don't feel like they have a clear conscience. They don't feel like they can just relax. Because it's very hard to relax when you're trying to look like somebody else. This is why mission is hard, too. For some people, I mean, the best mission is where you're comfortable in your own skin. And you don't need the person you're talking to to give you votes or make your stock price soar. You don't need that. You're so satisfied with the gospel. You're so satisfied with the glory of God. You've seen better things. You're overawed and impressed by a king that you don't need this person you're telling about the gospel to give you anything. I think a lot of times mission starts to shut down because people say, I can't relate. I can't relate to that person. They have tattoos, don't have tattoos. Have a suit on, they have a jet, don't have a suit, don't have a jet, they, whatever. We feel like we can't relate, so peer pressure makes us silent. That silence, of course, is an attempt to get them to like us and not reject us, right? It's very simple. It's just free-range peer pressure is all it is. It makes us, again, dishonest in our heart. 
This is what mankind does. We notice the problem. We've gotten to this place where we know that there is a problem and a, and a malfunction in us to be Mr. Potato Heads and try to get the affection and the adoration of others, so we roll up our sleeves and we try to fix it. And you know what we do to try to fix it ourselves? Just be courageous. Just muscle it through. I don't have to be intimidated by that person, but watch how this turns real quickly into something very gross. They can't influence me. I'm above that. They can't influence me. I'm more courageous than that. They're insignificant. What they think about me doesn't matter. It doesn't sway me. Do you see how this turns to make you the hero again? Anything that makes you the hero, friend, is not of God. Can I just say that real quickly? If you walk into a church, you read a book, and it's got you as a central character, put the book down, leave the church, go, where, go anywhere else. Anything that has you as the center of the universe is wrong. Wrong. And whenever we manufacture and, and synthesize our own courage to be above the fray of intimidation, that is not godly. There's got to be a better way than to just diminish everyone around us and say they're insignificant, so I need not, I need not feast on their approval. How do we do this? Let's look at 1 Peter 3. Peter speaks to it very well, and then we're going to finish in just a moment. 1 Peter 3, he says this, but even if you should suffer for righteousness's sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Don't be intimidated. Don't be pressured by peer. Have no fear. Don't be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Elevate Jesus. Don't elevate them. Elevate Jesus. This is what Peter is saying. Don't be intimidated by them. You've got them up here. Don't be intimidated by them. Honor Jesus. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with all gentleness and respect. Here it is, having a good conscience. Why is that so important? Because you're not dishonest inside. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Acting like you're someone that you're not. Acting like you're hipper than you are. Acting like you're more educated than you are. Acting like you've done more things. Acting like your past is more checkered than it really is. Is your conscience not stricken when you do that? Mine is. We're being dishonest. We don't have to do that. We're free from being intimidated. Not free because we're better than other people, but free because we've been overawed by a better king. We've been surrounded by glory. Just some quick application for us who are on mission to the city. Intimidation is basically a pressure for us to be silent. As I said just a moment ago, you see the person sitting on a bar stool, they look gruff, they look unapproachable, and therefore you don't want to approach them, right? And if you don't make them mad, then in some weird way, they approve you. But if you say something that makes them uncomfortable, then you fear rejection. And that is a subtle form of peer pressure, and it keeps us silent, doesn't it? Keeps us silent. They might not heart me if I tell them about Jesus. Friends, let me tell you, they're not going to heart you if you tell them about Jesus. You're not, that's not the fastest place to get affection and adoration. But man, what if you didn't need it? What if you just didn't need it? What if you did fix your eyes on the gospel and the grandeur of the glory of God, the one that the angels are clamoring to see? What if you did that and you did not need them to boost you where all the Festuses and the Agrippas of the world, it might be grand, but it just doesn't impress you as much. 
You know, similarity. I think sometimes we're intimidated because we're so different from the people that we're trying to reach. And we think if I was more similar, that would change them. Similarity never changes a person. Only the gospel can change a person, right? I've never heard a testimony where someone said, you know, man, I was broken and I was at the bottom of my barrel and was drinking my way just into whatever I could drink my way into until Luke sat down next to me and told me how he was in the same place and told me that he was just like me and so similar to me and man, it just changed my life and now I'm totally different. No one's ever done that. That doesn't exist because similarity, it doesn't change anyone. The gospel changes people. It, it, it doesn't matter how similar you are to that person. That's not going to ever change them. You know, we've made a very, 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 very big initiative in the last year to show you how true this is. When the year started, we went through a series called You Are Different. Some of you were here for that, right? Where we talked about how different we are from each other, how different we are from the city, and how different God is from us, and how the gospel makes us able to love each other and love the city, as different as we are. Then we switched gears and went into Jesus' people so we could talk about a distinct people who are different from the culture that they're in. And we're about to move as a church to a place where, friends, if I could just be frank, we're very different. We're very, very different. Similarity is not going to be our trump card to change a city. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. That's what will change a people. Quick application for those of us who are in community with each other. Ask yourself the question, who is it that you're draining and stealing approval and adoration from? Because that's the very same person you can't love. Intimidated people, they don't do community very well. They're so busy trying to be somebody else. They can't do community well. You can't love someone and steal attention and adoration from them at the same time. If you need them to give you something, you're not really going to be able to give them anything. You're able to give freely and serve them sacrificially if you don't need anything from them. That's what the most beautiful form of love and sacrifice comes from. But when we're in a group and we walk in and it's the me monster and we need to make everyone happy with us and be the attention of everybody's gaze and we need to make sure this person sees us this way and that person sees us that way, you're never going to be able to serve them. And you're not doing community well. You're breaking it in half because instead of being satisfied in how God sees you through Jesus, you're trying to get people to see you a certain way breaks everything in half. Who is it that you're doing life with that you must have them see you a certain way? You're not able to really love them well. It's impossible. It's impossible. Go ahead and stand with me. I want to pray and just ask God to bless us as we go through this service in regards to this passage, which is a tough passage. Some of you are in here you're still telling yourself, I don't care what people think about me. It's never been an issue. And for you, friends, it's never been an issue because you're so busy looking down your nose and diminishing people around you and elevating yourself that you, you're true. You, you don't really care. But it's because you hate people and you don't love them. It's not because you're doing it God's way at all. I would just ask you to repent. You're overvaluing yourself and you're undervaluing the people around you. That is anti-gospel anti-gospel. The gospel is one sacrifices for the benefit of others, right? Not, I'm going to benefit at the cost of everyone around me. Some of you in here, you're very intimidated. Rooms like this intimidate you. Living rooms intimidate you. Being at work intimidates you. Listen, 
It's true, you were created to be enamored and in awe, to think of something or someone to be awesome. You were created for that, just like Adam was, right? But don't aim it at petty things. Don't aim it at creation. Don't be distracted. Don't look down on people. Don't don't elevate yourself, but at the same time, fix your eyes on God and how he sees you and the beauty of the gospel shows you that your value is high, as high as it was for Jesus because of what God has done for you through Jesus. One took your form and image to give you a better one. And because of that, you're free to be you. You're free. And some of you in here are lost and you are far from God and you're going to get some leadership here in a minute on, on how you can work through some of that as Wes comes up here. But I just want to tell you that there are there, there is, there is something that is more beautiful than what you've set your heart on in the past. In fact, it's so beautiful and so intoxicating that as the text says, angels are elbowing each other out of the way so that they could get a better view of it. And it's the very boringly common, traditional thing that we call the gospel, which isn't boring and traditional at all, is it? It's the gospel what God has done for you. The fact that God condescends to reach you totally despite you. And none of us really did anything to earn that or even beautiful enough to, to, to warrant such a move from his position. But from his position, he chases us down, loves us, takes a hefty cost to give us something we don't deserve. In fact, he gives us the opposite of what we deserve. We waltz around with this perfect life given to us, a new image, a new form, that when he sees us, we have a value that cannot be increased on us. (laughs) That's amazing. That's waiting for you. But you have to put down your lordship and your godship and go back and say, God, you are God and you are Lord. You You need to be satisfied not having fans, not having worshipers fawn after you, but being a fan and being a worshiper. You have to be satisfied moving yourself out of the center of your little universe and placing God in the center of your universe. That's what is required in salvation. It's not just saying no to sins. It's being no to a sinner. That's what God would be asking of some of you today. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for being so sweet to us, God, that you've cured and given us an answer even to peer pressure, even to intimidation, You've given us a better route. And Lord, I repent. I repent personally for all the times I've looked down on people and used that as my mechanism to not be intimidated by them. To walk into a room and feel the pressure and then immediately put them down. Immediately devalue them and minimize who they were so that I could feel on top. Such a horrible sin. It is anti-gospel. And Lord, I do also repent for being intimidated simply by not remembering not remembering that glory has come to me, that salvation has come to me. Of all the kings and all the royalty, I have a true king. I have true royalty. Lord, you're so good. You're such a good God to us as a people that we could be above the fray of intimidation and we could be above the fray of peer pressure, not because we're better, but because we have better. Not because we're a better person, but because we have a better king. We can be overawed with you that we would not be overawed with mankind. And Lord, I know that a church full of people that are overawed by a king will do a better job of reaching a city. 
than a church full of people who are putting those down around them in order to be on top. Or a church full of people who are being silent in order to be accepted. Or a church full of people who are stealing from each other in order to be on top again. God, help us be a functional church because we love you first. Help us be a functional church because we're fixated and just fascinated by you first. Lord, correct our crooked hearts. Our hearts are so warped, but God, you are so good. You give us so much to celebrate. You have taken our form and image, and you have given us a new one. A new one. We have a new image, God. You are so good, you gave us a new image, a new form. So worth celebration. You're so good to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.